Okay, so my name is Ajahn Chandigo. I am normally resident as the abbot of Vimuti Buddhist Monastery in New Zealand, uh, which is south of Auckland. Um, but I also have family and a hermitage in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Uh, the family is in the San Jose area, and the hermitage is near Boulder Creek. So every year I come back and spend a few weeks or a month on retreat, normally just uh, living in the redwoods, camping in a tent. So I just finished that on Tuesday, a month of being in the forest. So I'll begin the Dhamma talk now and pay homage to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami So this evening I would like to talk on the subject of Kama. And this is the Pali word. Uh, we may be more familiar with the Sanskrit version, Karma. But uh, in Pali, in which the uh, Theravadan scriptures are written, it's K-A-M-M-A. So when we talk about uh, Kama, uh, what I can speak about this evening will just be a small taste, because it's a very extensive subject. And it's one of those subjects that the Buddha said, if you try to understand the complete scope of Kama and its workings, you would go crazy. So we don't want that to happen. So I'll just touch on it this evening. Um, but even touching on it you know, brings up some very important issues. So in the ordinary sense of the word, sometimes uh, uh, the term kama or karma becomes used uh, maybe uh, uh, not quite in the way that the Buddha used the term. For example, it may uh, be associated with a certain uh, mystical fatalism as if uh, uh, it's just that person's karma, it had to be that way, or it's, well, you know, this guy's been in and out of rehab, it's just his karma, and he, it just has to be that way. And that's very different than the way the Buddha talked about karma. Um, uh, one of the definitions of the opposite of right view, wrong view, or michaditi, is, is fatalism, this idea that somehow things are written out in the stars, or things are, are, are fixed. And the Buddha was very clear that that is not how he teaches the law of karma. So the law of karma is a, a natural law which is not bound by any particular time or culture. It is a law of cause and effect, but it is essentially a, uh, a mental activity. Of course, all of our Words, everything we say, everything we do has its origin uh, with an intention or motivation. But this is the, these are the key factors which are the essence of the law of karma, intention and motivation. So that's where we're going to be focusing our, our uh, uh, practice. That's where we can make significant uh, changes in our life. You know, if we think of 
the whole history of the universe, kind of all the causes and effects and everything leading up to this present moment, or actually the moment that just passed, whether we like it or we don't like it, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, there's nothing we can do about it. Right? You can't, you can't change that. However, how we respond to that, now that, that we can change, right? And that is literally creating our future. So if you ever feel like, oh, I'm just stuck, I can't change, I just, you know, you get into that mentality of, of just being, uh, feeling fixed. Well, the way the Buddha described the law of karma is very dynamic. So that when you, uh, like every moment, you have the ability to, to choose how you're going to respond. Right? Now, there are some times where our habits are so strong and we don't have a very strong level of mindful awareness, then we just react blindly. Right? We, just, we react, but we react without a lot of self-awareness, maybe not a lot of wisdom, and uh, we just react and we tend to perpetuate habits. Right? Someone pushes a button and boom, we respond in the same way that maybe we have for a long, long time. And um, people then, you know, once when you develop habits, they lead to patterns of behavior and lead to personality traits. And, and then people feel, that's just the way I am. Right? Well, that's just the way I am. I'm, I've always been that way. I'm never really going to change. But the reality is we can change. We can change quite radically. And if you happen to find that in your life you're not like ultimately blissfully content all the time, then there's room for improvement. Right? There's room for improvement. So, um, you know, if uh, the law of karma is, is very dynamic and many of our meditations are designed to intentionally bring up particular uh, thoughts or perceptions, right? Even mindfulness itself, you know, just mindful awareness is already good karma, right? Samadhi is very, very good karma, a pure state of mind. So let's talk a bit about good and bad karma. Now, we just for sake of you know, ease of speaking, we might refer to, oh, that's good karma or that's bad karma or don't do any bad karma. This is good karma. But, you know, the words good and bad are so, um, they change, There's, they vary so much depending on culture, depending on uh, particular eras, depending on personalities. Um, you know, one culture, something may be considered good and proper, and that very same thing in another culture may be considered bad. So the Buddha was much more precise when he was talking about the law of karma and how it worked and the type of intentions which will lead to specific results. So in Pali, the, the, uh, the type, the Buddha didn't really talk about good or bad per se in this context. Right? He talked about kusala and akusala. Now kusala is ref the best English translation that we have or that we've come to use, is wholesome. Right? Sometimes these English translations, you know, they, they all have certain benefits and drawbacks, but we've come to use the term wholesome for kusala. And akusala, its opposite, is unwholesome. 
So anything that arises from motivations or intentions that have the roots of anger or frustration, greed or selfish desire, or simply delusion or confusion, particularly around identification. Anything that arise, any motivation that arises from that, you can be assured that that will lead to suffering in some form. It may not happen right away. It may not be overt. It may be short-term, maybe long-term. It may be intense or may be hardly noticed. But in some way, if our motivation is coming from from, from anger or from greed or from delusion, then uh, it's very clear that that's going to be leading to suffering in the future. Now, if we care about ourselves and we actually want to be happy, then, then this, is, this is a key factor to understand. This is a key thing to understand. How is it that we actually develop happiness? How, how can we be happy? Because our minds will naturally incline towards being happy if we give it the proper information, right? But if we don't have the proper information, and I'm not just talking book learning, I'm talking about understanding, you know, based on clear seeing. If we don't have that level of, of understanding, then we don't clearly see the connection you know, between the intentions that we're generating in the present moment and the results of pleasant, unpleasant, experiencing pleasant or unpleasant things in life. Right? So the, the opposite of akusala is kusala, wholesome. Right? Now, it could simply be equanimity. Even equanimity is a wholesome state of mind. But then, of course, there's, there's a whole range of wholesome states of mind. If we're motivated by, motivated by generosity, motivated by loving kindness, compassion, um, sometimes simply being mindfully aware. I mean, that already undermines delusion. Certainly, if we're able to maintain states of uh, being peaceful and calm and bright and aware, you know, what we refer to as samadhi, particularly when that is taken more deeply in samadhi, then that is, that's, uh, that's a mind state which has tremendous beneficial results. Both in the present is very joyful and, and, and supportive of insight, but long into the future that creates a, um, a whole wide range of um, wholesome karma that will be coming back to us. So I also want to differentiate between karma, the cause, and karma vipaka, which is the result. Right? Sometimes just for just in ordinary language, we might get them mixed up and say, oh, that's just his karma. But the Buddha referred to karma as, as action. And when we refer to action, um, mental action, right? based on, a, on an intention, whether that intention is clear or it's foggy or if there's mindfulness with it or not, right? there, there will be intention behind our, our actions, behind what we say, behind what we do, how we move our body, you know, there is intention there. And this is the essence of kama. Right? Now the result is it has a different term. Vipaka. You know, it's the it's the 
It's the result of karma. So you can call it karma and vipaka or karma vipaka. Now, even something as simple as picking up a cup and taking a drink, there is intention there. Right? But I could do it with mindful awareness, self-awareness, right? awareness of awareness of the intention, awareness of arm moving out, awareness of movement of the limbs, awareness of the uh, sensation of the liquid on the tongue, or could do it almost completely blindly, right? without really fully acknowledging thirst. You just reach for a cup and take a drink. Meanwhile, thinking about something else, maybe reading something, looking at your phone, you, you know. And then, uh, so then it's very difficult to have much of an input on, you know, an interaction with this dynamic law of kama. So that's why we place so much emphasis on being clearly aware. Right? Clearly aware. You know, aware of your body. Aware of how your body is moving. That's like an anchor in the present moment. And with that, then we become more clearly aware of each thought, motivation, intention, our perceptions, right? everything that uh, is happening in our mind and our hearts. Only then do we start to get some clarity around why is it that we do what we do? How did I end up here? Right? Why is it that we do what we do? And is it just by chance? Is it just, you know, what happened? Well, consciously or, or unconsciously or semi-consciously, we made choices. You know, we made choices in the past which led to this particular situation that we find ourselves in. So this helps to both take responsibility yeah, for certain things, certain situations that we find ourselves in. Right? So it's very helpful for, for uh, rooting out complaining. Right? Find ourselves in a situation that's maybe not very pleasant with people that we don't like or whatever, getting feedback we don't want. So then it's easy to blame. That's the easiest thing in the world. To blame this, blame that person, blame the situation. Not happy with that. But a reflection on, well, to what degree did I make choices in the past which led to this particular situation? And so it helps just to take responsibility and say, oh, okay, I, I, I did have a role in, in ending up in this particular situation. It's not that it's not that everything that we experience is a result of our past karma. There are some forces of cause and effect that are are outside of our mental stream of consciousness, such as earthquakes or weather patterns. Right? If if uh, if we get an if we get an earthquake, it's not necessarily because everyone in this area has made bad karma. 
It's because God is mad. Um, but how we respond under the mental state of the people who experience that will vary radically, right? Depending on the, how, they, how they've cultivated their mind in the past. So one person um, may have intentionally or unintentionally just been cultivating stress and anxiety, you know, in their daily life, even when there was no earthquake, and then the earthquake hits, and then it just puts them over the edge, and they kind of lose it. Another person may have just been cultivating, um, cultivating meditation or cultivating kindness, cultivating service, um, generally to a higher degree of happiness and contentment, contentment. And then when an earthquake hits, it's like, okay, they're in the same situation, and yet the response may be very different. Right? And based on the, uh, the, the moment-by-moment cultivation of states of mind that we develop. So this allows a great amount of freedom. We start to see, well, I, can, I, have, a, I have input on my future. I, you know, I, can, I can have... Um, I, or at least the illusion of I, <laughs> the illusion of me making free will decisions then has the most direct input on the level of happiness or unhappiness that I will experience in the future. Right? So that's a very freeing idea in and of itself, that we are not victims. We're not just passive victims going through life. Right? We can take a very active role. Now, as I said, the, the, the law of karma and the way the Buddha uses that, makes use of this law of karma, is not so much to uh, affect external situations so much. Um, I mean, it's true that if you develop certain types of karma, then you can be wealthy. If you develop certain types of karma, you may have many friends, you may be very popular. Um, the Buddha was not so concerned with those results. The Buddha was more concerned with what type of karma leads to the liberation of mind and the perfection of happiness, the, the, the ultimate liberation and transcendence of the human mind. And so that's essentially what our Dhamma practice is. And when we start to to reflect on what causes lead to what effects, then we start to get a handle on, oh, okay, oh, you know. For example, maybe we end up in a situation where we, we know we're suffering. It's not like subtle suffering. It's like, okay, we know we're suffering. How did I end up here? And we can reflect back and think, well, okay, there were certain decisions I consciously made. I made decisions even whether some were conscious, some of them, maybe I was just following old habits. But still, I have to take responsibility for those decisions. And then that led to this situation. Right? So even if we find ourselves in a difficult situation, if we learn a lesson by, if I do that, this tends to lead to this result. Start to see the connection between causes and results. Then... Uh, then it's still very beneficial. Then we learn that, well, maybe I, I don't need to do that in the future. Right? Maybe I don't need to do that uh, again if I want to be happy. Or when things are going very well. You know, things are going really smoothly. Everything's wonderful. 
relatively speaking, and to think, well, what did I do? Um, did I do? How did I end up in this situation? You know, it was just by chance. Yeah. Um, again, when things are going very well, you can um, uh, abdicate responsibility to somewhere else. Someone else. Oh, I'm doing very well because um, I'm in love with this person, or because I have these friends, or because I have this nice job. But really, you know, both for the suffering aspect and the happiness aspect, then you say, oh no, I should take some responsibility for this and reflect back. Or what is it that in the past that I have done to create a greater sense of contentment? Because when things are going well, it's easy to take it for granted. We can become a bit complacent. But that's no, you know, that's that's also an important time to reflect. What what things have I done in the past which has led to an increased amount of uh, say general level of happiness or contentment or peace of mind? Right? Because no matter how uh, content you feel, you're still a long ways from enlightenment, unless you're fully enlightened, of which case, excuse me. But if you're not fully enlightened, then there's still, you know, a lot of potential left. It can get much better. And, and But if we start to understand the, the particular, the, uh, how the basic principle works, then our minds will naturally incline towards happiness. I mean, our mind's naturally inclined towards happiness, and the Buddha uses this principle throughout the Dhamma teachings, gradually re- replacing a more coarse happiness with a more refined happiness. Right? So if we understand what causes actually d- lead to happiness, then we don't have to convince ourselves. Right? It's not like, oh, I should do this because this will lead to happiness. No, as soon as you see it, this is, you know, this is the beginning of insight and wisdom. As soon as you see it, that has a direct correlation with, with this, and this is really what my heart wants, then it's easy. You know, we automatically start doing the things which actually lead to happiness. But in uh, the mainstream, we, some, of the, some of the things which the Buddha recognizes as the true causes of happiness don't get a lot of emphasis. Right? And some of the things in the mainstream which are emphasized a lot the Buddha would say, well, those are actually the causes of suffering. So you can't just believe what you see on TV. <laughs> That's my Dhamma talk. You can't just believe what you see on TV. You have to actually investigate for yourself. And this is one of the reasons why I always loved you know, the teachings of the Buddha, because that's what it encourages. It said, look into your own life, investigate for yourself, don't just believe in the law of karma, but look, look deeply. What, what intentions lead to what results? Right? Now, uh, one example is, let's say, uh, generally, you know, even if we don't consciously uh, think of ourselves as materialistic, there's a, it's a, there's a lot of influence on our society. There's a lot of pressure that, you know, if you have uh, a certain amount of wealth, whether that's a house or money in the bank or a jet ski, then that equates with success and, and therefore happiness and respect from others, right? You know, all of which that we, we think we want. However, 
Um, if you actually look at it, giving something up is actually, you get more happiness from giving something up than you do from getting something. Right? For example, if you give a gift to someone, just look at your mind state. If, you, if you're very clear, I'm giving a gift to you, right? then, then that's a, that, that in and of itself, that's, that tends to be a lightening of a burden. So uh, even if you get something and it's something you want, that's pleasant. But actually giving something and giving something up is even more happy. Right? So sometimes what actually leads to true happiness is counterintuitive or maybe countercultural. There's a quote from the Sutta where the Buddha says, what, what the enlightened ones see as happiness, ordinary people see as suffering. What the ordinary people see as happiness, the enlightened ones see as suffering. Uh, so there's... there's uh, you know, there's a lot in that about... Um, you know, we, we tend to... We tend to have a lot of pressure towards developing... Uh, our identification with this body, with this, with the, our ideas, with uh, everything that we're doing—you know—there's a lot of identification wrapped up, and then it keeps getting layer upon layer added to that as we get older. Whereas uh, being no one special can actually be uh, quite pleasant. <laughs> And uh, and knowing that um, this whole idea of me and mine is merely a uh, social construct uh, based on delusion, uh, that's even more freeing, right? Then we really start to understand the roots of, of true happiness. So in like cultivating intentions. I mean, that, uh, we have certain meditations that specifically do that to help uh, start a habit, right? So that we begin to do that in daily life. But for example, if you're doing loving kindness meditation, right? You start with, um, "May I or may someone else be happy?" Right? Let's say, let's say, "May I be happy?" Uh, that can be a difficult one for some people. Or got a lot of. Uh, Emotion involved with it. May I be happy. May I be well. May I be free from suffering. And and even if you don't actually feel kindness towards yourself, still sincerely bringing up the intention. Right, you're already making good karma. The intention. May I. May I be happy. Right. This is very simple. May I be free from worry. May I be free from pain. Right. Now, even if you, part of your mind says, oh, this is hokey, I don't believe this, I don't really, I hate myself, right? Right? Even if, even if that's there, you just come back to a sincere intention. May I be happy or may I be free of pain? And you don't have to be gushing with loving kindness to be making lots of good karma, right? Because you're developing a wholesome intention. And the same thing with others. May, may, may this person be happy, right? Even if it's someone you don't, you don't particularly like, or you, like I say, you're not, 
don't feel a true generation of loving kindness at that moment. Still, there's a sincerity of, yeah, may that person be happy. Sort of, but may they be happy in hell. May they, may they be happy in hell. Now, may they be happy. You keep coming back to wholesome intention, and and that in itself is is the essence of karma. We're making good karma, right? And gradually, then we have the ability to to modify how we how we are motivating. You know how we are motivating ourselves and how we think and how we perceive. Right? Now, if we have ingrained habits, it doesn't just happen like that. But you know, it it may take a lot of repetition. But then you start to see results, and you realize, okay, you start to kind of uh, there's a lot more fluidity here than than I thought. So then you can start to really um, you can play around with the law of karma in a wholesome way. And say, well, every moment is an opportunity for developing a wholesome state of mind, right? So if I, everything that I do, kind of do it as a with the mind of service, for example, right? Now you could you could be working a job that actually is helpful, and still be making lots of bad karma just because your mind state is is in a negative state. You're like I don't want to do this. I don't really care. Right? If, we're, if we're in that mind state, we're actually even if even if we're you know even if we're doing something useful to other people, we still might be making bad karma in our own minds, which is not leading to our own happiness. So you think, well, I have to do this job. I need the money. How about if I just change my intention and motivation? And so then. Uh, so maybe I do it with a mind of service. Okay, well how can may you know may this may whatever I do make your life easier in some way? Right? Now that's a totally different, totally different uh, karma that we're making at that point. And immediately you start to see a, a change in in our attitude. Uh, but then over the long term, it really has uh, um, long long lasting benefits. I've been talking about intention and motivation. They're, they're not identical. And it's worth mentioning the difference between the two. Uh, now, for example, intention, you may, you may intend to go into a grocery store and just for fun or just out of a sense of um, anger at society, you, you shoplift some food. And uh, and right, you're just motivated by unwholesome, uh, unwholesome thoughts, unwholesome intentions. But in a very different situation, maybe war and in famine, you go and you steal some food in order that your family can survive. Right now, the intention is the same to steal food, but the motivation is very different. So motivation is a powerful mitigating factor. Right? Another example. If you uh, if you blindly or, or cruelly kill an animal, kill a large animal, uh, that's gonna that's gonna really weigh on your heart as as unwholesome karma. But if you have a, a beloved horse, a horse that you love, that is like a family member, and then they break their leg, the horse breaks his leg, and you have to to kill the horse. Um, 
it's not done out of you know it's done out of compassion, out of to to relieve the suffering of that animal. So the karmic effect will be very different. Now the intention is the same, right? So if even if you kill out of compassion, then there still we will be karma involved with killing. We don't escape that, but the weight and the, of the results, the vipaka, will be very different, right? If you kill out of aggression, right, the vipaka, the result is very heavy. If you kill out of compassion, the result is going to be far, far less. You know, there still will be some negative result. So you you don't escape uh, the the you don't es- even if you're motivated by compassion, you don't escape um, the karmic result of killing, stealing, um, harming others. Right? But there are times in life where we find ourselves in a dilemma, and then the the alternative is even worse. So then you just have to make the decision to say, I'm going to consciously make the decision. I know this is uh, unwholesome karma, but the alternative is worse, so I'm going to willingly take this on. It doesn't mean that we're free from that. Just because we're, just because we have the motivation of compassion, doesn't mean we're we're free of the other aspects of the law of karma. Now there are are many mitigating mitigating factors when we talk about the results of karma. Um, one, for example, is um, the the external, ob- what we call the object of the law of karma. Um, let's take, for example, an, uh, another living being. If you intentionally kill a mosquito, and if you intentionally kill a human being with the same mind state, then uh, the result of killing a human being will be much greater. Right? There will be much greater karmic effect. Right? So uh, that is one mitigating factor. Right? Now another is the mind state in which we kill. For example, I've just been referring to that. If you, if you, if you kill with, um, if you kill, let's say you, let's take a mouse for example. It's a bit. It's a bit larger than an insect, but not so intense as a human being. So if you kill a mouse um, simply out of habit, by you want to keep your garage free of mice and you set a trap and you end up killing a mouse, then, of course, there's, there's some bad karma associated with that. Right? You have to be, say, well, have to be willing to take that on. But if you went out and with a a fierce in anger towards a mouse and you cornered it and smashed it, right? Now, the, the effect is essentially the same, but the mind state with which we acted was very different, right? I mean, let's say the mouse got into your favorite sweater, ate a big hole in it, and you were just enraged, and then you chased it down and smashed it. <clears throat> so that would be, the effect would be, much greater. You know, the negative effect would be much greater. Right. So conversely, you know, 
think about wholesome states of mind. If we, if you do your meditation, just sort of, just sitting down, see what happens. Right? Just sit down, see what happens. You know, you're sitting there for 40 minutes, 45 minutes, and right, you okay, didn't fall asleep, but right, there's not a lot of clear intention there. Right, so there'll be some good karma, but it's a bit hit and miss. Now, if you sit down to meditation with a very clear intention, right? This meditation, my intention is to mindfully be aware of the breath flowing in and out of the body, or to pay attention to physical sensations throughout the body, or my intention is to systematically develop uh, loving kindness. So then, then it's uh, you begin with a much clearer intention that will have a greater effect. It will amplify the positive effects. So this is you know, one, of the, one of the keys to success in meditation. Is, uh, don't, you know, it's, if you sit down, just kind of sit and still and watch, it's okay. But uh, if there's a clearer intention... I mean, not not to the point of trying to control, you know, being controlling with your meditation, but just uh, a clarity. What is the what type of meditation are you trying to do? What what technique are you trying to develop? Uh, what state of mind are you trying to aim for? And then everything else becomes a distraction, you know, you know except for that. So then, then the that amplifies the positive results. And again, we can do that in daily life as well. It's like if you, you meet someone on the street, you give them a gift, and um, if you just kind of do it out of uh, in a perfunctory manner, uh, then you know, there's some good karma there. There's some wholesome karma. But if you do it as like truly from the heart, the result is the same. They get the same thing. But the effect on our own mind is far greater. Now, another mitigating factor is habitually, how do we live? Right? Now, if, if habitually we're normally a pretty nice person, a pretty nice person, patient, forgiving, but uh, once in a while we lo- lo- lose our temper. Now, the, the result from losing our temper will be greatly mit- mitigated by our habitual uh, nice behavior, right? Our habitual wholesome behavior you know, will have a, a great softening effect you know, on that particular uh, moment. Now, if, if, if we're regularly losing our temper, then, then there's, there's, not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of space for softening. You know, for each one, it's like you really hit the full you get the full impact yeah, of that of that of that unwholesome comma um, it's a bit like in our monastery in New Zealand we have eight ponds and if you take a you take a, a a teaspoon of salt and put it into one of the ponds and then dip your cup in and drink it it's good water it's it's and uh, you can't taste the salt, right? But if you take that same teaspoon of salt, considered the unwholesome comma, and you don't have a great store of, of wholesome comma, 
and you, it's like putting it in a glass of water, a teaspoon of salt in a glass of water, and you drink that, and it's nearly undrinkable. So it's that's a, a metaphor which helps to see, you know, if we're habitually doing a lot of wholesome karma, then occasionally if we slip up, there's a lot of of, uh, of room that will help to soften the effects. Now, ultimately, the idea is that we become liberated or free from this this cause and and the karma and vipaka principle, right? Uh, because ultimately, this is the thing that keeps us bound in the in samsara. And so it's it's only really when insight goes deep enough that we're able to uh, like cut off, literally cut off the uh, the great majority of the unwholesome karma that we've made in the past. When insight goes deep enough, it's like a, it's like we're pulling along and like a like a mala. You see some of these malas that have just have you know a string of beads held together by a string. You're, as long as you keep pulling it all along, then it's like you're dragging all of our past karma with us. But deep insight is like cutting the string, right? Essentially, seeing that the sense of you know this this identification with me and mine is an illusion or is simply an identification that we have created ourselves. then if that insight goes deep enough, it's like cutting that string. And then this is what we call sotapanna or stream entry in the first stage of enlightenment. And then it's like all of those, all of the old beads, you know, just kind of go their own way and we're not we're no longer pulling them along. So this is the this is the the uh, the true purpose of understanding how the law of karma works. But even if it doesn't, even if you don't get as far as the first stage of enlightenment, there are major positive changes that we can make in our life, just based on um, even even a rudimentary understanding of the law of karma and how we can interact with it. On a moment-by-moment moment basis, will uh, um, it's possible to make great changes in our life? So, I offer this for your reflection this evening. So, I'm happy to answer any questions. Yes. Hi, that was a great talk. Thank you. Um, you mentioned coarse happiness and refined happiness. Can you give an example on how you make one into the other? Or When I was a teenager, I thought it was great fun. I won't go into the details, but there are a lot of things that I did which I thought were great fun at the time. And... Uh, and you wouldn't be able to convince me at the time that I was not having fun. But later on, I think with some maturing, I look back and I think, I wouldn't want to do that again. It doesn't look like happiness anymore. You know, I found something better. Right? I found something better. And uh, uh, if you apply that to Dhamma, 
let's say uh, let's say we're getting some happiness from accumulation, right? There is, you know, there, the Buddha never denied that there is some happiness that comes from gratifying our desires. It's just the problem is, is it doesn't last. Right? It's not. It's 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 fleeting, and and then we tend to get bored with it once we have it. So there is a gratification there from accumulation or gratification of desire, and then and then maybe through meditation or some other self-reflection, we start to see, you know, wait a minute, the happiness that I'm really looking for is in my heart all this time, right? Or we, we have some powerful experience of helping someone who's in need, right? And suddenly that it pulls us out of our, our world of me and mine, and, you know, just everything revolves around me, and we see someone else who's in need and we help, and we give and we serve, or, and then we think, oh, that was that was so powerful. That was much more conducive to happiness than all of the accumulation, right? yeah. not just a material accumulation, but accumulation of you know acquiring status and respect and everything. So then you can take that deeper as well. Every stage of of uh, developing meditation is based on you. you you develop a certain level of joy and happiness and meditation, but then you get a taste of something that's even more profound, even more deep. You say, oh, well, this is, this is even more profound. Uh, we talk about perfection of samadhi uh, called the jhanas. And so, you know, first jhana has, has certain factors in there, which already, it's already maybe the greatest happiness we've ever experienced, the most satisfying and then maybe after you've developed that a bit, you happen to stumble into second jhana and you realize, oh, even that quality of, of rapture is a bit too coarse. And it's even a more subtle, is more satisfying. And gradually, and then even the quality of happiness is, is too coarse and it leads on to equanimity as the, the ultimate. So that's, that's one example. I'm curious about, there are millions of children all around the world starving and suffering. How does karma come into that? Well, I think a, a callous way of looking at the law of karma is, say, if all of some are suffering, you say, well, it's their, it's their karma, right? They must have done something really bad in a past life you know, to end up in that. Um, and it's hard to know. We don't really know what other people's you know, past karma is. But even if, even if someone is suffering due to their own bad decisions, right? I mean, starving children may not come into that so much, but uh, if someone is suffering ba- based on karma they've made previously, then still our duty is to try to be as open-hearted and as, and as helping as possible. So, uh, karma should never be used as a a way of being callous, you know, callous-hearted. Do you know what I mean? So, if people, yeah, I mean, there's to a certain degree the situation that we find ourselves in, 
even where we're born, the society in which we grow up in, in, over in the big picture, then yes, that does seem to have something to do with karma that we've made in past lives. Now, anything to do with past lives is more difficult to verify. Right? I mean, this life, we can, st- we can kind of get a, a handle on the law of karma, um, but to truly understand the law of karma, then, then uh, the Buddha you know, definitely brought in past and future lives in order to explain all of the intricacies of it. I don't know if this is, story is going to come out right, but um, I guess I'm wondering about the difference between in t- our intention and how it's perceived by people because that can be quite different. Um, so, for example, I went to a restaurant and ordered this wonderful dessert but was too full to eat it one time. It was beautiful panna cotta. And I was walking back to BART, and a woman was sitting there with all of her stuff. And I said, oh, do you want something amazing? You know, here's this panna cotta. And she said, oh, and she opened it. And it was just like it had melted, and it was a huge mess and just disgusting looking. <laughs> and the woman's like, oh, no, you know, like, no, you know, and so it sort of seemed a little bit offended that I wanted to give her this mess of, you know, pudding. And um, so I'm just wondering, you know, at that point, should I have, you know, like, it, my intention was good, but yet it was, you know, it just kind of, you know, turned into a mess. So <laughs> how, in that case, I guess, yeah, and in general, just intention versus the outcome can be mm-hmm. different. Yeah, this is an important point because we can do things either with an intention or without an intention, and say, my intention wasn't to do something bad happen, say, well, it wasn't my intention. But there are other factors that come in there as well. And sometimes um, there are many intentions that we're not fully aware of. Right? Now, uh, mindfulness, the intention to be aware. Right? Awareness also arises from intention. It may not be fully conscious to us, but awareness arises from an intention. And intention will tend to pick up some of the details, right? Now, in your particular situation, if your, your intention was good and, uh, okay, maybe at worst there was a lack of mindfulness in recognizing that, oh, maybe this is no longer suitable you know, for somebody, right? Um, but, you know, it's, it's fairly minor in that case. Now, but... But that does bring up an important point. There are times when, let's say you, you're driving and you hit a pedestrian. And you say, well, it wasn't my intention to hit a pedestrian in any way. It was no intention to harm anyone. But, but I was looking at my phone or I was thinking about something else. And, and so there is uh, lack of mindfulness is not an excuse it's not a get out of comma free card right? so so there is also intention there is also comma around not being mindful right? um, I mean ultimately my mindful awareness takes in the whole situation it's kind of going away from your question a little bit but it's an important point that 
if we allow ourselves to be distracted, but we say, oh, you know, then something bad happens, say, well, it wasn't my intention that that happened. It was kind of our intention that led, that had, we don't, we still have to take some responsibility for that because if we were not paying attention, right, then we're developing karma associated with delusion, right? Being distracted, not being clear, not being aware. This is all karma associated with delusion. We're not angry, you know, we're not, uh, we're not necessarily overcome with greed or desire at that moment, but we're developing delusion just through not being clearly aware, right? Or being distracted. So and similarly, you know, in, in criminal law, um, there may be, if you happen to kill someone through negligence, you don't get away scot-free by saying, oh, it was my intention, right? right? But uh, just through, through negligence or lack of clear awareness, um, you know, you're still held responsible. So in the law of karma, it's that way as well, to a certain degree. Uh, just to follow on to that, uh, what, it, what do we call an accident? <laughs> so you could see that there was intention on both sides, maybe, that created an accident. Like a generally an accident, or you mean specifically like a, a uh, car accident? Well, <laughs> well, I think of a car accident as, as one example, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, what, normally what we call accidents are simply... Uh, a not not a lack of full recognition of all the causes that led to that particular uh, outcome. Right? If we understand, understood all of the causes and conditions, or to a greater degree understood them, then it would have been more predictable and not a surprise. You know, a lot of things that seem to be surprises or just happened by chance. It's mostly just because we haven't clearly understood you know, the causes that would actually lead to that result. I was wondering about uh, collective karma, that we're part of a society that is doing unwholesome things, and we're participating in it either more or less consciously. Right. And how that would, you know... Uh-huh. Yeah, that's an interesting point. In the, sorry, in the suttas, the Buddha never... There's no term for collective karma, and the Buddha never talked about um, groups sharing one karma. However, if you have a group of people with similar intentions and actions at the same time, then they will be making very similar karma, and there will be a very similar result. And it's not that it's not that the group itself makes one karma and then they all experience the result themselves. Or, as a group, but individually, they can be making very similar karma based on similar intentions. So you get, I mean, lots of, lots and lots of uh, examples of that. Um, and if you live in a society or a culture that it, that does certain things, uh, we tend to be affected by that, right? Even if we don't buy into it fully. But generally, the way the Buddha talked about the law of karma is that it's a, a single stream of consciousness. Right. Yeah. 
Thank you. Uh, do you have to believe in past lives for karma to make sense, and especially with regard to you know starving children? Does do like does one or do I believe in past lives? Well, yeah, does one? I mean, does so. does a person have to believe in past lives in order to fully accept the law of karma? No, no, um, because the Buddha never asked us to believe in something that we couldn't verify. Right? I mean, I have come to. Uh, I tend to be a skeptical person, and I've come to a working belief in past lives, future lives, through through many, you know, through very good circumstantial evidence. <laughs> but I can't prove it. But in terms of understanding the law of karma, no, you just look at your own life here and now, right? You just look, just just start experimenting with intentions, right? And how that creates a mind state in the present, right? You know, very different intention and will lead to a very different mind state. And and then just watch how that those particular intentions will lead to particular types of speech. Ways that we speak, right? You know, we may say the same words, but we say them with different intention, have very different results. So, oh wow, this is you know, when you really look into it, it becomes very interesting. You play around with it, say, oh, let's let's uh, let's see what happens if I if I uh, say, how are you? But I shout it with anger. <laughs> you know, someone coming down the street. Now that's going to have a very different effect. Than if you say, you know, with loving kindness, hey, how are you? Right. Um, right here and now, you know, you can get enough of a clearly verifiable understanding of the law of karma that it begins to make sense that it 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 carries on. It's quite easy to imagine that. What we experience now is simply the result of of previous causes and conditions, and the causes and conditions that we're creating now will continue on after death, you know, to to uh, lead on to further life. So it's not necessary to believe in that, but after a while, I've come to a working belief in it. Ajahn, would you say something about how not acting or inactivity is not a get-out-of-jail-free card either in the context of kama, or if it is, just your, could you explain that? How not acting? Not acting is not the right understanding of... Or, yeah, I was of, talking about uh, lack of mindfulness or lack of clear awareness, but yes, also... You know, if you if you decide not to act, then that is already, you know, you've made and there's an intention there, right, and a result, right. So that you have to take responsibility for that. Right? So what we think of not acting is just another action, right? Right. Instead of moving the body around and you just sit still, right. That's an action. If you uh, um, if you decide not to go to the protest and stay home, that's just that's also just an action, 
It's just a different action. It's not really non-action <laughs> or doing you know, nothing. It's very easy to misunderstand hmm? not creating kamma as or well, one way to do it would be not acting. But that's that's oh, not right. get out of jail free card. Well, see, before the Buddha, there were lots and lots of different uh, uh, spiritual traditions and independent spiritual seekers in India who understood that samsara was a trap and they knew that the, the carrying around a bad karma somehow was involved with that. And so there was a general idea that, you know, if you, like in meditation, for example, if, uh, if old memories come up and you just patiently watch it, right? Just be patient, patiently endure maybe unpleasant memories or unpleasant emotions, they will actually go away. It feels like you're, you're burning up old kama. Right? Now, the Buddha said it's impossible to burn up all old kama. But there was that, that idea that if you simply um, burn up all of your old kama, then you'll be liberated. Right? And so to help speed up that process, uh, you start inflicting pain on your body. This is the, the rational basis for... Um, asceticism. You know, it's not, it's not like they're crazy, right? You know, just doing these uh, seemingly outlandish ways, you know, uh, practices to torture their body, right? Um, the idea was that this will speed up the process of burning up old kama until all the old kama is freed, uh, burned off, and then they'll be liberated. And uh, that's the quick route. Uh, the Buddha said, no, actually, you're just making more bad karma <laughs> doing that. Or it really more depends on your state of mind than what you're doing with your body. Right? Similarly, if you just decide, okay, I'm going to not make any new karma by just sitting still or not doing anything, that is already karma. You're, you are making, you are, it's a misunderstanding of the law of karma and how it works. You know, you're, already, you're still doing something with intention and motivation. Well, we've come to the end of the evening. So if people have further questions, then uh, you're free to come and talk to me uh, afterwards. And um, But I don't want to keep people too long. I know some people have to, uh, have to go home. So how does the evening normally end with um, maybe sharing merit or sharing loving kindness yeah, with the the people, um, may they be free of suffering, free of worry. Metta, loving kindness, for the families that are seeking asylum in the southern border of the USA. May they be free of suffering. Thank you for coming this evening. And uh, probably see you again next year. I tend to come by every year at this time. Take care. Be well. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.